Today marks the third Sunday of the Advent season. Christmas is now a week closer, and get this, so is the return of our Lord. For more than 15 centuries now, the church has set apart this season to look back and to look forward. We look back at the arrival of King Jesus, the babe born in Bethlehem, the one who is Emmanuel, God with us. That's the first advent. And we look forward to his future arrival when he will come to judge the living and the dead. That's the truth that we affirmed just a few minutes ago in the Apostles' Creed. And those words are actually taken directly from Acts chapter 10, 2 Timothy chapter 4, and 1 Peter chapter 4. He will come to judge the living and the dead. So with those two advents, those two arrivals in view, it is most fitting for us to focus our thoughts this season on the four last things. The certainty of death, the day of judgment, the joys of heaven, and the pains of hell. And this morning we're going to think together about the third of those last things, the joys of heaven. Two things come to my mind when I think about heaven. The first is a verse, 1 John 3, 2. It's in this morning's text, and we'll talk about it. The second is an old book that I've told you about before, The Saint's Everlasting Rest. I read this old book about 22 years ago, and it radically shaped my thinking as a new believer. It was written in 1647 during the English Civil War. Richard Baxter, a Puritan pastor, working as an army chaplain, fell deathly ill. He resigned his post, and staring death in the face, he penned these words. In the dedication at the front of this book, Baxter tells his readers the condition he was in when he wrote. And these are his words. Being in my quarters, far from home, cast into extreme languishing by the sudden loss of about a gallon of blood. I think he was suffering from tuberculosis. And having no acquaintance about me, nor any books but my Bible, and living in continual expectation of death, I bent my thoughts on my everlasting rest. I took my pen and began to draw up my own funeral sermon. This book, he says, was written, as it were, with one foot in the grave by a man betwixt living and dead. And Baxter laid there for five months, alone, dying, and with nothing but his Bible and a pen. And what he does is he takes a single verse, Hebrews 4.9, he meditates on it. It's only 12 words. He meditates on it and writes an 850-page book. Baxter didn't die. He actually recovered, lived for another 44 years, and wrote volumes of other helpful books that are still in print today. 
Now, towards the end of his dedication at the front of the book, Baxter writes what I think is as good an introduction to a sermon on heaven as anything I've read. Listen to the heart of this man. Now, reader, whatever you are, young or old, rich or poor, I beg you and charge you in the name of your Lord, who will shortly call you to a reckoning and judge you to your everlasting, unchangeable state, that you give not these things the reading only. He says, don't just skim over these things. And so dismiss them with a bare approval. But that you set upon this work. That's the work of meditating upon heaven. And take God in Christ as your only rest. And set your heart upon him above all. Jest not with God. Do not only talk of heaven, but mind it and seek it with all your might. What greater business have you to do? Dally no longer when your salvation lies at the stake. And I beg the same of you this morning. Don't just talk about Advent and about heaven, but mind it and seek it with all you've got. And to whet your appetite for doing exactly that, Open your Bible to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 28 through chapter 3, verse 3. But first, we want to get the bird's eye view of this text because context is critical. And once we get the bird's eye view, then we'll jump in. The Apostle John, the beloved disciple, he wrote this little letter, this little five-chapter letter to churches in Asia Minor. That's in modern-day Turkey. These churches faced a firestorm of false teaching that denied two things about Jesus. One, it denied that Jesus was the Son of God. And two, it denied that Jesus had come in human flesh. So at its core, this false teaching denied the very truths that we celebrate at the first advent. And some of the members of these churches fell prey to this teaching and left the church. This caused the believers that stayed to question their own faith, whether they were believers and had eternal life. So John writes this letter to strengthen their confidence. He gives them at least a dozen evidences for them to use to evaluate their hearts, their lives, and the lives of the false teachers. That's the situation that John is addressing in this letter. Now listen to what he says, beginning in chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, you can feel the compassion that the beloved disciple has for his readers and now, little children, abide in him. That is, abide in Christ. This is the first of two commandments in this text. Abide. False teaching about the true nature of Christ is spreading like gangrene in this body. Many have already abandoned the church, and those that remain are losing confidence. And the antidote, John says, is to abide in Christ. 
Now that word abide has a very special meaning for the Apostle John and for all of the followers of Jesus. It means to remain, to stay, to persist in, even to cling to. Jesus uses it in John chapter 15 to paint a picture of a vine and its branches that represent him and his followers. He says, I am the true vine. Abide in me and I in you. Just imagine, John was sitting there when Jesus spoke those words to the disciples. And now he's taking that same concept and he is urging these believers to do the same thing as an antidote to false teaching. He says, you must abide, remain, persist in what is true about Jesus. Cling to the life-giving sap of the truths of the gospel, of the glory, of the true vine, or else you are a dead stick. Those truths include all the reality of the first advent. And they were delivered to these believers by eyewitnesses of these events, like John himself. He even began this letter with those truths. He said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and we have looked upon, and our hands have touched concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, it was put on display, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and which was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. Let those truths abide in you, not this new teaching that denies Christ. If these truths abide in you, you will abide in him, and then you can be confident of what he promises, eternal life. And that is exactly how John pulls this together. And to see that, just step back a few verses in this chapter. Look at verses 24 and 25. John says, let what you heard from the beginning. That is, those truths about Jesus that the eyewitnesses like me told you. Let those truths abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. So, cling to the truth of Christ because that's what true believers do. And that stands in stark contrast to those who abandon the faith and separate themselves from the church. So abide in the life-giving truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Verse 28. So that when he appears, this is the second advent now, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Remember, this is all about strengthening their confidence. John wants them to look back, cling to the truths of the first advent, and then look forward to the second advent. 
If you abide, if you persist in these life-giving truths, you can have confidence that the return of Christ will be of no shame to you. There will be no fear of the judge returning. That's what the entire Advent season is about. Now, one more thing about this abiding in the sun. And this is important for understanding John's argument. The result of abiding in Christ is the bearing of the fruit of righteousness. The branch that abides in the vine bears fruit. And here's why I say that. Look at verse 29. And notice how closely connected this is to what Josh preached last Sunday about the sheep and the goats. Verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Here's John's logic. If Christ is righteous, and he most certainly is, then you can be sure that those who practice true righteousness have true righteousness in their DNA. They have been born of the Spirit of Christ. They are a good tree. Therefore, they bear good fruit. They are sheep, therefore they behave like sheep and not like goats. Those who abide in Christ bear the fruit of righteousness. It is the result of abiding in the true vine. Whoever abides in me, Jesus said, and I in him, he, he it is who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And those who thus abide in Jesus have confidence and eagerly await his return. And those who don't should tremble at the very thought of the arrival of the one who will judge the living and the dead. That's point number one. Prepare for Advent by abiding in the Son. Now look at verse one of chapter three. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Now mark two words in that phrase, see and kind. Remember I said there were two commands in this text. Abide was the first, and here's the second, see. It is a command to look, but that's a bit too weak for what John is saying here. I really like the King James Version and a handful of others that instead of see or look, use a word that's rather rare these days, behold. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed. Now it means the same thing. I just think behold does justice to the gravity of what John is proclaiming here. Behold, what kind of love the Father has given to us. Now, look at that word kind. This is the same word the disciples used about Jesus when they saw him rebuke the sea and calm the storm. Remember that? They cried out, what sort or what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him the word means of what country of what country is this this is utterly foreign to us 
We've never seen or heard anything like this before. Of what country is a man who can calm the sea by just speaking a word? Of what country, John is saying, is this love that has been lavished upon you? One commentator says, you need to contemplate this love. You need to allow its reality to sink down into the depths of your being. It is meant to take your breath away, to startle and amaze you, so that you are left gasping, what sort of love is this? That sinners who deserve the wrath of God should instead be lavished with the love of God. So as you prepare your heart for Advent, behold the mind-staggering love of the Father. Now, do that by considering three things. And all of them are under the heading of beholding the love of God. Consider what you are. Consider what you will be. And consider what you will see. What you are, what you will be, and what you will see. First, what are you? To be clear, you were a sinner, dead in your sins. I'm speaking to believers now. So whatever changes that is only because God took the initiative. You were incapable of loving him if, if he did not first pour out his love upon you. In this is love, not that you loved God, but that he loved you and sent his son to be the wrath-quenching, atoning sacrifice for your sins. What is this kind of love the Father gives? We're still in verse 1. That you should be called children of God. Let that sink in. This is love. The Father calls you his child. This is pure grace. He not only loves and saves undeserving sinners, but he even calls them his children. But this love is even greater than that. Take a look at the next phrase. Behold what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. Now mark these four little words, and so we are. Believer, you are not merely called God's child. You are not merely a child in name. You are his child. This father-child relationship is real. You are called his children, and so you are. The father, in the overflow of gracious, unfathomable love, adopts you. And how did he make this kind of love known? John tells us later in the letter. In this, the love of God was manifest. It was put on display among us that God sent his only son into the world. That's the first advent. So that we might live through him. Again, eternal life. Or you can say the saints' everlasting rest is at stake in these truths. So brothers and sisters, don't waste this Advent season. Every time you pass a nativity scene or hear a carol on the radio, think about the mind-staggering love of the Father, sending his only son into the world to save sinners. 
adopt them as, as his own, and give them life everlasting. Let the thoughts of that kind of love kindle a fire of worship within you as you celebrate the first advent and long for the second. But this love is even greater and even more glorious than that. Not only does God call you his child and you actually are his child by adoption, but skip over to verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. This reality isn't something that will be true someday in the future. After cancer strikes its final blow or at the return of Christ, you are God's children now. Of course, you await the full blessing of that inheritance, of course. But you can approach him today, now, as your father. And when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. It's Galatians 4. Let your father's love sink into your minds and soak down into your hearts as we finish verse 1. The reason why the world does not know us John says, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. You see, this love of the father transforms his children. His children are of an altogether different breed. You are as different as a sheep is from a goat. What you believe and how you live and how you celebrate Advent and Christmas morning is utterly foreign or should be utterly foreign to the world around you. That's why the scriptures call you pilgrims and strangers on this earth. If the world knew your father, they would understand you. They would know you. But they don't know your father, so they cannot make heads or tails out of you. Verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. If you're a believer, that's what you are. Now consider this question. When Christ returns, what will you be? John says that what you will be is hidden. And there's some mystery here. We're continuing in verse, we're continuing in verse two. What we will be has not yet appeared. It's true. You are children of God now, but the full blessedness of what that will look like in glory is hidden. Paul, in his letter to Colossians, tells them that their life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, though then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, we don't know exactly what a child of God with a fully purified heart and mind and a glorified body will be like. But here's what we do know. At the second advent, you know it will be glorious you know that you will appear with him in glory. And you know that you will see the glory of Christ, John 17. And because you see his glory, you know you will finally be conformed to his image, Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 15. 
Now, this conforming and transforming power of beholding the glory of Christ is happening to you right now as a believer. You know that from passages like 2 Corinthians 3. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. But back to verse 2. When he appears, we shall be like him. Your present transformation by grace into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another will come to full consummation when you step into the presence of your Lord and behold his glory. The 17th century Genevan Francis Turretin had a famously succinct way of putting this. He said, grace is glory begun as glory is grace consummated. Grace is glory begun as glory is grace consummated. The gracious love of your Father transforms you. You are no longer goats or bad trees. You're new creations in Christ, yet he is not finished with you. His grace is only glory begun. At the second advent, when you step into glory, his transforming grace will be consummated. We shall be like him. So because of the love of the Father, what will you be? You will be glorious like Christ. Unless we take that idea too far, Luther makes an important qualification. We shall be like him, but not identical with him. For God is infinite, but we are finite creatures. Moreover, the creature will never be the creator, yet we will be like him. God is life, therefore we too shall live. God is righteous, therefore we too shall be filled with righteousness. God is immortal and blessed, therefore we too shall enjoy everlasting bliss, not as it is in God, but the bliss that is suitable for us. Now, if that's what you will be, and I admit there's overlap here, what is it that you will see? There's an overlap because what you will be is precisely because of what you will see. Beholding the glory of the Lord is what is transforming you now. And when you finally see him face to face, you will be glorified. And what that fully means, I don't pretend to know. But we do know, verse 2, that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Now, up to this point, you might be wondering, what in the world does all of this have to do with heaven? You're thinking pearly gates and streets of gold. Well, the answer is right here. It is in that little phrase, we shall see him. You see, that is the very essence of the believer's experience in heaven. 
So I hate to break it to you. You might not notice the mansions or the streets of gold, but only because the sight of God will be captivating and overwhelmingly glorious. R.C. Sproul said of this text that it's one of the most important, if not the most important, end-time texts in the New Testament because it promises believers that we will enjoy the zenith of felicity, that is the height of happiness in heaven, the beatific vision. And what is the beatific vision? It is the indescribable pleasure of seeing God face to face, so to speak. Jonathan Edwards paints a beautiful picture of this. The pleasure of seeing God is so great and strong that it takes full possession of the heart. It fills it so that there shall be no room for any sorrow, no room in any corner for anything of an adverse nature to joy. No darkness can bear such powerful light. It is impossible that they that see God face to face, that behold his glory and love so immediately as they do in heaven, should have any such thing as grief or pain in their hearts. And once the saints are thus come into the pres God's presence, tears shall be wiped from their eyes and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The pleasure will be so great as fully and perfectly to employ every faculty, that's every ounce of your glorified being, the sight of God's glory and love will be so wonderful, so engaging to the mind, and shall keep all the powers of it in such strong attention that the soul will be wholly possessed and taken up. That is something of what it's going to be like to see the Lord face to face. That is the saint's everlasting rest. It is the essence of heaven and the greatest blessing that God could bestow upon a lowly creature. It is the love of God experienced beyond your wildest dream. But this unmediated sight of God can only happen as Calvin said, once the veil of this mortal and corruptible nature shall be removed, that is when the shell of this acorn of a body dies and springs to everlasting life. That is why believers eagerly await the second advent. For now you see, as it were, the backside of God's glory. You see in a mirror dimly, but then you will see face to face. That's also why verse 2 doesn't just say, you shall see him. It says, we shall see him as he is. So what will you see, brothers and sisters? You will see God face to face, as it were, and the sight of him will be the epicenter of your experience in heaven. He is the fountain of all beauty and all joy and all delight. And you will drink from that fountain forever and ever and ever. Come, Lord Jesus. Let me just add one more thing about 
what you will see in heaven and what you won't see in heaven. There's going to be a lot for you to meditate on this week of Advent. Now, I've shared this before, but I think it is good for you to hear it again. I need to hear it again. So here it is. In 2003, I went to a conference in Minneapolis to celebrate, I know this sounds odd, but to celebrate the 300th birthday of Jonathan Edwards. Dr. Sam Storms was there. He lectured on joy's eternal increase. And that was 20 years ago now, and I've never forgotten his words. Part of his lecture was a meditation on heaven from Revelation 21.4, 21.8, and 21.27. Listen to him describe from those texts what you won't see in heaven and what you will see. When you get to heaven, there will be, said Edwards, nothing which shall offend the most delicate eye. In other words, nothing that is abrasive, irritating, agitating, or hurtful. Nothing harmful, hateful, upsetting, or unkind. Nothing sad, bad, or mad. Nothing harsh, impatient, ungrateful, or unworthy. Nothing weak or sick or broken or foolish. Nothing deformed, degenerate, depraved, or disgusting. Nothing polluted, pathetic, poor, or putrid. Nothing dark, dismal, dismaying, or degrading. Nothing blameworthy, blemished, blasphemous, or blighted, nothing faulty, faithless, frail, or fading, nothing grotesque or grievous, nothing hideous or insidious, nothing illicit or illegal, lascivious or lustful, nothing marred or mutilated, misaligned or misinformed, nothing nasty or naughty, offensive or odious, nothing rancid or rude, soiled or spoiled, nothing tawdry or tainted, tasteless or tempting, nothing vile or vicious, wasted or wanton. You will see no such thing in heaven. But what will you see? Wherever you turn your eyes, you will see nothing but glory and grandeur and beauty and brightness and purity and perfection and splendor and satisfaction and sweetness and salvation and majesty and marvel and holiness and happiness. You will see only in all that is adorable and affectionate, beautiful and bright, brilliant and bountiful, delightful and delicious, delectable and dazzling, elegant and exciting, fascinating and fruitful, glorious and grand, gracious and good, happy and holy, healthy and whole, joyful and jubilant, lovely and luscious, majestic and marvelous, opulent and luscious, majestic and marvelous, overwhelming, radiant and resplendent, splendid and sublime, sweet and savoring, tender and tasteful, euphoric and unified. 
Oh, brothers and sisters, you simply cannot fathom what it is going to be like to be in the presence of your God and see him as he is. And yet for all the glorious things you will behold in his presence, know this, God is even greater and even more glorious than that. In the words of King David, behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain him. Let me close by addressing two groups in this room. Believers, that's who I've been mainly speaking to this morning, and those who might not believe or are not sure if you want to believe. Believers, prepare your heart for Advent. The time is near. Prepare yourself by abiding in the Son and by meditating on the love of your Father. What you are, what you will be, and especially what you will see. The unimaginable delight of what you will see when you finally enter your everlasting rest. God's grace in you is glory begun. And glory will be God's grace consummated. Meditate upon that this season. For unbelievers in the room, I cannot fathom how you could reject the adopting love of my Father. You are blind. I hope, though, that the Spirit of my Father is working upon your heart this morning. Let me urge you this Advent season to ponder carefully the four last things. Think seriously about death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Death is inevitable. It is the just wages of your sin, and the judgment that follows death is just as inevitable, and heaven and hell hang in the balance. This is God's word to you. Prepare for the arrival of his son, King Jesus. He came first in the humble, swaddling clothes of a baby, but when he returns, he will do so as the judge of the living and the dead. To those who are not his children, who do not believe, he will say, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. His children, though, he will welcome into his glorious presence, which is their everlasting rest. To be a child of God, to be called a child, to be his child in reality, to be his child now, you must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. And how does that happen? First, you must recognize your hopeless state before God. You are fully deserving of His wrath because of your sin against Him. You are a sinner by birth and by your every action. You have broken the letter or the spirit of every one of God's commands. And even those sins that you think are trivial, a little white lie, a lustful look, amount to defiant acts of treason against your Creator. And because He is a good and just God, He cannot allow sin to go unpunished. The wages of your sin is death and hell. And the problem is that you cannot save yourself. 
but the grace of God has appeared. The love of the Father was put on display in the first advent. He sent his son Jesus to take on human flesh, to live the perfect sinless life that you could not live, and to suffer and die a humiliating death on a Roman cross. It was there on that cross that he paid the penalty for the sins of those who believe. Now he sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven and he offers forgiveness and everlasting rest to all who call upon him for mercy. You can't save yourself from the wrath of God, so you must trust in the one who has the power over sin and death. Put your trust in him. Believe, receive, put your faith in Christ alone to rescue you and to unite you with him. A great exchange is offered to sinners. Your sin credited to Christ's account. The penalty you owed paid by him as your substitute. Not only is there forgiveness of sin, past, present, and future, but the righteousness of Christ credited to your account. A great and gracious exchange is being offered. Call upon him for mercy. And if you call upon him for mercy, you can bank on this, that all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To borrow again from Richard Baxter, dally no longer when your salvation lies at the stake. Let me pray for you. Father, this is serious, serious joy considering what little bit we can comprehend about what it's going to be like to be in your presence. Father, I do not want anyone here to miss that glorious experience. Father, I pray that you would awaken within the hearts of people here who do not know you. Awaken with them a desire, a love for you. Father, as, as we reflect upon the first advent, the coming of your son, and as we long for the second advent, Father, I pray that you would use these glorious truths to awaken sinners to repentance. And Father, I ask that you would use those truths to continue us as we abide in the truths of your Son. Oh, Father, I pray that you would do that miracle in our hearts today. For your glory and for the glory of your Son, Jesus. Amen.